0: Wir haben so vieles geschafft, wir schaffen das.
1: Ich freue mich sehr, heute hier in Deutschland zu sein.
0: The Transatlantic Alliance is back and we are not looking backward. We are looking forward together. Meinung ist dass Nord Stream 2 fertiggestellt werden sollte. The fact that Germany is doing better so far makes one humble, not overconfident. Es ist ernst. Nehmen Sie es auch ernst.
2: Welcome back to Neuschland. I'm William Glucroft.
1: And I'm Kate Brady. Oh, it's nice to say that again.
2: It's nice to hear that again. It's been a while.
1: It has indeed. So thank you, first of all, to the listeners who reached out asking when we'd be back. And here we are. We took some time in the past few weeks to make some exciting plans so that we can bring you the best podcast possible in Germany's election year. Super <laughs> <Maya>. <laughs> we're definitely going to have to get a jingle for that. And we're really looking forward to bringing you all along with us in the months ahead.
2: And with that in mind, we're also excited to announce our new cooperation with the Berlin-based podcast network, Bear Radio. It's home to more than 20 great podcasts, so we're very happy to join the family. And you can go check them out on Twitter at Bear Radio Berlin or on their webpage, bearradio.org.
1: So, what's been going on in the Schland while well, we've been away, we hear you ask?
2: Well, in the time we've been away, vaccine rollout has started. More on that later. Merkel's conservative CDU has a new party leader. There have been sanctions on companies involved in the building of the Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline between Russia and Germany.
1: So, enough to be getting on with, I'd say, and yet. Here we are, like pretty much the rest of the world, still stuck in Groundhog's Day. And I see you've been working on those lockdown curls. Do you think you're going to be keeping them?
2: Uh, for as long as they're going to last on my head, as I got one year older also while we've been away, I think uh, I'm uh, in good company with people whose hair have been getting longer and longer and more and more out of control, as hair salons, barbers, fizzura, whatever you like to call them, have been shut like many other businesses,
1: they reopened on March first. Have you already booked yourself
2: in? I actually did. Um, I again, you said Groundhog's Day. I feel like I'm having déjà vu to this time. Well, maybe not this time, but last year when uh, we were going through much the same thing, and uh, we remember an older episode where I went to have my first uh, post-lockdown haircut, and now I'm going to have, my I guess, my second post. Lockdown haircut next week. Very much looking forward to getting these curls under control, as many other Germans have. Seeing that barbers and hair salons were allowed to open up almost a full week before many other things.
1: And that, of course, was largely due to Bavarian State Premier Markus Söder.
0: Aber es hat was mit Hygiene zu tun. Für viele auch gerade Ältere, die es brauchen, sich selber das nicht oder schwerer tun. Und es hat ein bisschen was. Ja, dazu stehe mit Würde zu tun.
1: Being able to go to the hairdressers, he said, particularly for people who have difficulty doing their own hair washing the hair themselves particularly the elderly for them it's a matter of hygiene but also it's a matter of dignity
2: and he is a man of style we've seen with those those very fashionable zip-up jackets he's been wearing to a lot of the press conferences uh, with Angela Merkel
1: he's just working that home office lockdown style
2: almost like he can walk out of that press conference and be ready in a moment's notice to hike the Bavarian hills
1: so that's one way we saw the lockdown already being eased earlier this month but now there's more Nach
0: zweieinhalb Monaten Corona-Lockdown haben Bund und Länder den Weg für Lockerungen geebnet. Dafür yes, it
1: was that time again this week when Merkel and the 16 state premiers decided on the next step. Should the lockdown be extended? When should it be relaxed? What should be relaxed? So let's have a listen to what she had to say. Es sollen Schritte der Öffnung sein und gleichzeitig Schritte, die uns in der Pandemie Nicht Merkel said these steps should lead us towards opening up, but at the same time they must not throw us back into the pandemic. In Europe, she added, there are many examples of a dramatic third wave and we mustn't deceive ourselves. That danger also exists for us. So really serious stuff there, but there has been um, many a screenshot during the round this week, particularly of Berlin mayor Michael Müller holding up this new five-point plan. It was very Homework message. Well, I think
2: as you rightly pointed out on Twitter, Kate, um, as every uh, high school student knows, if they need to squeeze more text onto a piece of paper, just extend the margins and shrink the font. And uh, German leaders seem to have taken that tip to heart by squeezing all of this information, steps and incidence rates, and X can happen if Y first happens. But of course... All of it, whether it's cafes and restaurants and museums, uh, whatever bit of public life, so much of this opening, reopening, slowly reopening, if, then, but, uh, is only going to happen if they can really get testing in order. So there's some semblance of security that you're not going out there and unknowingly, unwittingly affecting, infecting uh, your fellow resident.
1: And Merkel also announced this week after that meeting with the state premiers that every citizen will be eligible to one free COVID rapid test a week.
2: That's right. This has been a debate raging within the federal state federalist structure and also public health officials about if and how to roll out mass rapid testing around the country to anyone who wants it, something that other countries have been doing for months, and Germany just hasn't gotten its act together. Let's not forget that for the entire duration of this pandemic, to get a PCR test was really only reserved for people who have been showing symptoms. Rapid tests were really only available for free if you were traveling or met certain other conditions, if you were a teacher or some other kind of essential worker. For the rest of us, if you felt the need to get a rapid test, you had to shell out 25, 50, sometimes even more euros organize it all yourself, figure out where to get it, stand in long lines. So that is what looks like is finally on the table. It really breaks down into two things. You have these rapid tests, you know, where you go to a medical practice, you go to a testing center, or even now it's gonna be rolled out at schools and places of work where a trained person, a medical person is gonna stick a swab up your nose or into your throat or sometimes both. It's supposed to be free. A lot of public health officials wanted to offer two per person per week. That would mean 160 million rapid tests to be made available in Germany every single week because there are some 80 million people in Germany. That was nixed for this one test per week. That's still 80 million tests if you do the math per week. Then on the other side, you have these home tests. And these home tests are going to be available for purchase at your local Aldi, at your Lidl, at your DM, your favorite drugstore, pharmacy, grocery chain, where, where you like. The problem is, when it comes to both rapid tests or these home tests, which is, of course, also a type of rapid test, there have been very few standards to ensure accuracy. That's slowly starting to change. We now have some kind of benchmark that tests have to reach, that manufacturers have to reach for them to be approved for a sale in these various stores and for the rapid test to be covered by the german government they need to meet some kind of accuracy standards and one last important thing no matter how accurate or how tough the standards are a rapid test will never be as accurate as a full lab-based diagnostic PCR test.
1: And then of course just one other point is there's the question as to whether or not people are going to be passing on the result because that has been an issue already in a number of these uh, pop-up rapid test centers that we saw there was a real surge in them just before Christmas when some people were deciding to travel.
2: Health officials here are basically saying look if you do a home test and you're positive at least you're already home so you can just stay home so people will already be isolated so that's at least something it's better than nothing but as you point out that's right it would be up to that person to then go get a follow-up test, an official follow-up test, either another rapid test or a more accurate PCR test that then would get forwarded on to public health officials.
1: So, talking of new cases, let's just jump back real quickly to these new measures. The lockdown officially has now been extended till at least March 28th, and despite this plan to uh, relax some measures here and there, uh, Merkel did say that there's this emergency break, uh, meaning that if the seven-day incidence rate... Uh, is above 100 cases per 100,000 people. Uh, the emergency brake will be pulled and regions, at least at first, will be put back into a lockdown. Basically, the measures that are in place currently until March 8th.
2: I think it's really important, though, that there's a lot of public health officials and epidemiologists who are very skeptical of this whole incidence rate system, that it's become a number that everyone is obsessed with because we it need. Used be the it used to be the R rate. And, you know, is it overwhelming? Is it under one how fast it's spreading and then, and then that last summer became less relevant and now we're all been focusing on incidence it's so rate with our is it and <laughs> you know is it 35 per, per hundred thousand or 50 or a hundred or 200 these numbers are really whatever they, they take on whatever significance we want them to have many public health officials say the incidence rate doesn't really matter as long as you have an appropriate plan a hygienic concept as we like to say here in Germany to meet that that severity that 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 rate of infection in the population so 35 200 whatever nonetheless this is the number these are the metrics that um, that state and the federal officials are going by 35 50.
1: Seeing as you love numbers so much, let's just have a little quick look at exactly where we are right now. This dreary Saturday morning, right as we record, the German Public Health Institute, the Robert Koch Institute, has reported just under 10,000 new cases in the last 24 hours and 300 uh, deaths. Now, the seven day incidence rate is up slightly, as they say, uh, 65.7 per 100,000 people. And more than 40% of new cases are the new variant, one of the mutations, the B117, 1. 1. also known as the British variant. Which is
2: a worrying trend because I think just a week or two ago, it was about a fifth of all new cases, was the more infectious variant. And now we're looking at 40%.
1: And this has been one of the main concerns. This was at the center of the debate over whether or not Germany should be relaxing measures, and to what degree. Uh, Every day, you hear uh, more and more critics talking about the third wave. Are we already in the third wave, or is uh, easing measures uh, going to help accelerate that third wave? Fun fact for you this week. The Robert Koch Institute announced that faxes, and anyone who knows uh, Germany at all will know that faxes are still very much alive and kicking here, are for them at least a thing of the past. So there'd been this problem, especially earlier on in the pandemic when laboratories were having to fax test results to relevant authorities. There was just no digital infrastructure there. So anyway, the RKI has announced this week the wait for it das deutsche elektronische Melde- und Informationssystem für den Infektionsschutz. Or oh, Demis for short. Welcome to the future, Germany.
2: Now that they've checked digitalization off their to-do list, maybe they can get to vaccinations. <laughs> (laughs)
1: really has just been abysmal, the rollout here in Germany,
2: hasn't it? I mean, on one hand, let's cut uh, people some slack. This is one of the, if not the largest logistical programs that humankind, that civilization, has ever tried to achieve. It's trying to do stuff that the EU, that institutions, both at the national and the supranational level, have never really tried to do before, really were ever cut out to do. That said, Germany is a very rich country with a lot of resources and a lot of power and a lot of influence, and things will be going a lot better than they currently are.
1: Only 5.9% of the population has now received the first shot of a COVID-19 vaccine. Just to compare, in the UK, for example, more than 30% of the population has now received their first shot. In the US, 16%. and And in Israel, more than 56%. And there's a whole mix of obstacles and hurdles that have been slowing down the rollout here, isn't there?
2: That's right. And probably the number one thing is logistics and supply. The US can basically supply itself in vaccination production. The UK created the AstraZeneca vaccine. They've been using that a lot. They also have gone to a one-dose Uh, Regimen backing away from this two-dose idea uh, to get as many vaccines out there at once, whereas Germany and the EU more widely are sticking to the two-dose strategy. And also that Germany, like all other EU member states, agreed to let the EU do all the procurement in a sign of solidarity, which is very nice for EU solidarity, but other countries such as Germany, may have been able to do it faster and better for themselves in terms of getting those contracts, making those deals with the various vaccine suppliers. There just isn't the supply there. I think at current count, there's been about 10 million doses in total uh, delivered to Germany so far. And remember that Germany and the EU were about three to four weeks behind approving the first vaccines in the UK and the US. So there's some some catching up to do. And only about 8 million of those doses have been actually administered with some of them being held back for that second shot. Then you have the whole AstraZeneca debacle, which is multifaceted, both from a little bit of leftover Brexit anger to misinformation in the press about exactly what this vaccine was to who it's being approved for. Germany at first was not letting it be used for over 65s. And since only over 65s are getting vaccinated except for frontline workers, that means invariably a lot of that AstraZeneca vaccine is just sitting in storage being unused.
1: Well, a lot of that been- been unused as well because people are uh, also not turning up for vaccinations because of, as you mentioned, this uh, bad press uh, that AstraZeneca has been getting. Um, Anecdotally speaking, I've heard from a lot of people who have had the AstraZeneca jab. Most of them have all had um, quite severe side effects. That is something that has put off a lot of people. But of course, there's been a lot of new studies now uh, that have shown that the um, AstraZeneca vaccine is um, immensely effective also in people over the age of 65 and so we did hear from uh, german health minister Jens spahn yesterday saying that uh, the german vaccine commission has now said that it recommends using astrazeneca for over 65s as well so we could uh, see that coming into uh, force just in the next few days the speed at which germany rolls out its vaccines now is imperative to not only coming out of the other side of the pandemic, but making sure that people really can come out of the current lockdown and stay out of the current lockdown.
2: Now, lockdown or no, there are, of course, plenty of events still being postponed or moved online due to the pandemic, and the annual Berlinale Film Festival is no exception. Now, the festival usually takes place at this time of year at Passammerplatz, which is probably one of Berlin's weirdest post-wall corners, and it is covered in red, and the golden bear hanging down as people try and get a ticket to screenings, and some fans even turning out in the cold to catch a glimpse of their favorite movie star. And it is just crazy to think that this festival was happening at this time last year with the pandemic on the horizon.
1: Well, the glitz and the glamour of it all might be on hold, but the event itself is still taking place in a pandemic-friendly way. And bringing his own glitz and glamour to home screenings, this Berlinale is New York Times German drama critic AJ Goldman, who's been attending Berlinale for 14 years. Adam, welcome to Neuschland. So, your work has changed incredibly over the last year. You're usually shuttling backwards and forth, back and forth between Berlin and Munich, covering films, opera, theatre. And of course, at this time of year, the Berlinale. What is it usually like? Take us back to those, those pre-pandemic days. I started
0: going to the Berlinale when I was, oh God, um, I was 22 or 23 years old my first time. And I was just in heaven. I'd never seen anything like it. I thought it was the grandest thing on earth to be in a place 10 days absolutely marinated in movie land. I would see up to five films a day and try and get into as many press conferences as possible, as many um, line up, as many interviews as possible. Having said that, Berlin is not a festival that attracts the glitz and the glamour of Cannes or Venice. And I think a lot of that has to do with the city itself. Berlin, let's be frank, is not a glamorous city and it hasn't been for about 80 years. Berlin, sadly, doesn't have a Riviera. It doesn't have a beach. It doesn't really have much but Potsdamer Platz. Which leaves a lot to be desired. <laughs> exactly. Potsdamer Platz, which any, Berlin, which any self-respecting Berliner will tell you is a place he never goes to. I've, always, I've long felt that the Berlinale actually mirrors the city of Berlin itself in several key ways. Like the city, it's, the film festival is just... It's unmanageable, it's big. uh, Journalists are sent scuttling to Friedrichshain and Charlottenburg In the coldest month of the year and so and and it's also a it's a very eclectic and somewhat obnoxious festival everyone's in a bad mood because february is so goddamn cold clearly there's no better place to be um than inside of a toasty movie theater
1: it sounds more
0: like the berliner schnauzer festival than the berlin film festival (laughs) no it often is it often is the berliner schnauzer festival (laughs) But but what I've always enjoyed about the polynala is you you really never know what to expect, and a lot of these movies won't be seen anywhere else. That might be changing these days with platforms like Mubi that um, bring award-winning films from festivals to the to the web immediately after the festivals um, screen them.
2: I think everything you describe about the film festival and its difficulties is why, despite all the years I've lived in Berlin and despite my interest in film, I have seen so few films at the Berlinale. And I, I think actually the only few films I've seen... And the only interaction I've had with the festival is through your kindness by having me as a plus one. You might remember last year, this party we went to for one of the films. And it was at the time that the pandemic was definitely more than a China story. We all knew it was coming. It was like this storm on the horizon that everyone could see, but no one could quite feel yet. And I remember being a really weird moment uh, where it wasn't quite i wasn't quite sure how i should feel about being at that kind of that kind of gathering when when we all knew what was coming and i was just i was shocked sure. by how it didn't become uh you know such a health problem do you, do you super a super spreader event
0: yeah no the bullenala the 2020 bullenala was the last major european uh, cultural event that happened um that actually took place because um it really it really was um about the timing, more than anything, had the event been scheduled for even a week later, they would have shut it down.
1: So far this year, juries of individual sections uh, have been been to screenings, also a handful of journalists. But for the rest of the journalists, this has all been done at home with the screenings on on laptops, which must be a huge blow uh to the film industry and people who have put you know their heart and souls into these into their films
0: yeah i mean what's very clear to me is that they waited as long as possible to see if a live in-person event was going to be um safe and um could go ahead and when it was determined that that was not the case they just you know threw their hands up and said okay well we can always do an online thing as a worst case scenario, in the worst case scenario. And I do wish that they had thought about it a bit more and um, put together a more interesting remote festival. I mean, in the past year, I have been writing a, m- primarily about remote theater that's occurred online. And in most cases, it feels pretty far schlepped. It feels like, you know, this is a substitute for the real thing. However, for my most recent uh, New York Times column, I wrote about the Brecht Festival in Augsburg. Augsburg is the Bavarian city where Brecht was born. And every year they have a festival named after him. It's not not a festival of his works. It's not like Stratford-upon-Avon for Shakespeare. But rather than just kind of upload a bunch of uh, filmed productions, the festival directors did something quite clever. They spent months commissioning original content and finding ways um, to design the festival from top to bottom for the web. And I, and I wish that the Berlinale had found a way to create, a different kind of festival experience online. I don't care about red carpets, but it would be nice to, if they had done some sort of like filmed introductions and say, okay, we're going to have all these special features. We're going to have interviews with the directors and the stars. We're going to have talks, but I'm really, um, you know, like I've been getting on my computer and you scroll through the 12 to 20 movies they make available each day. And I'm like, where do I begin? You can watch a movie sped up to eight times its original speed. I have no idea why the Berlin Film Festival would be um, facilitating this sort of skimming. Um, I'm I'm not suggesting they're encouraging it, but. There is an
1: option. It's like every movie is starring Alvin and the Chipmunks. <laughs> exactly. Every exactly. Two German films have actually opted out of being screened remotely, haven't they? They have, and it's puzzling. And these two films are um, Fabian Going to the
0: Dogs by Dominic Graf and Naben or Next Door by the directorial debut of everyone's favorite German cutie pie actor, Daniel Bruhl. The thing is I've seen one of them. Um, Fabian Going to the Dogs, and it's good. It's not great. It's good. It's a, it's a, it's a Weimar-era film based on a novel by Erich Kessner. Kessner, of course, is best known as a children's book author. This was his, first, this was his only novel, full-length novel for adults, um, and follows the career of a young, struggling writer in Berlin around 1931. It's one of uh, four German films in competition this year, um, including Ich bin der Mensch, A film which, um, you know, one of the rare examples of a German film where the international title is actually better, Um, it's just called I'm Your Man. And this is by Maria uh, Schrader, who um, directed most recently Unorthodox for Netflix, the series Everyone and His Mother Saw, because it was the, the thing that was streaming immediately when the pandemic hit. Ich bin der is a, a, a sort of love story between about a, a researcher at the Pergamon Museum and an android designed to fulfill her every wish. It's actually a very good film. I was surprised. A bit of uh, Spielberg's AI in there, maybe a bit of Blade Runner as well, but it's it's a sensitively done film and you know, surprising even if the sort of uh, themes Grand themes of like, what does it mean to be human? What separates human from machine are oh, ones that we've seen explored many times before and might seem a little tired by now. And it's a good Berlin movie. That's the thing. Berlin, the Berlinale loves Berlin movies. Every year, there are always a handful of films that try um, and usually fail to, uh, to sort of capture Berlin's unique energy, spark, effervescence. Um, Everything that makes Berlin wonderful and terrible in in equal measure.
1: So what do you think the the future holds for theatres, cinemas and and the arts industry in Germany uh, going forward? I mean, if we get very sachlich about it, um, all those kind of things, theatres, cinemas, concert halls, opera houses, they're all listed in the fourth step of the plan to move Germany out of lockdown right now. So we're not expecting to see any of those uh, reopening until at least March twenty second. So let's say we're in a better place by then. Are they ready to open? What kind of future do they have?
0: Oh, that's a really really tough question. Um I mean March twenty second I, I I also saw that. Um that seems to me ludicrously optimistic. Perhaps cinemas will reopen at very limited capacity. Or yeah, like what happened in in the fall, um before the second wave hit with full force, is that um you did have this window when Theaters and opera houses and concert halls reopened with limited, um, with reduced capacity. Now, this is the sort of thing that could only ever happen in um, a place like Germany, where culture, where high culture especially, is funded so lavishly by the state. Because when when an opera house receives 80% of its operating budget from the state, they are not Uh, they don't need to rely on ticket sales the same way, say, the Metropolitan Opera in New York does. So it made sense for the Berlin State Opera to open the doors for 200 people rather than 1,000 in America. This would just, it would be suicide. It wouldn't make any financial sense. You would need to sell individual tickets for, you know, thousands upon thousands of dollars um, for for them to even break even, I think in the long run things are going to be okay. Thank God Germany supports culture so robustly. I've spoken to a number of intendants that is artistic directors who have said that they're starting to have difficult financial conversations with politicians. If you know that probably means they're going to need to cancel a couple of productions they were hoping to present. Not that they're going to need to like make massive layoffs. Um, or um, let alone shut down. I'm sure so many institutions in America, cultural cultural institutions are going to just crumble. I'm sure many have already and and many more will. I don't really see that happening to Germany. Do you think there'll be opportunities for even um, smaller fringe groups to continue? to seek out the living and and, and, um, and continue.
2: Adam Goldman, a man with an opinion about everything. And if you haven't gotten enough of him on this episode, you can find him at the New York Times and other distinguished publications about drama, theater, the arts, and all good things culture. Adam Goldman, thanks for joining us on Euston.
1: Well, that's it for this week. It's been wonderful to be back. If you enjoyed it even half as much as we did, why not drop us a line? We love to hear from you. Don't forget you can subscribe on your podcast provider and you can even leave
2: us a review. Till next time, mach's gut.